Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to make note of something. This week, the New York Times put out a poll that said Americans believe that democracy is in trouble, but they don't appear to be willing to do anything about it. I think that that is horse hockey. You know it, and I know it. Americans believe in democracy, and it is not our job to follow polls, but to convince our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers, and members of our community that voting is imperative. Guys, we're less than three weeks to Election Day. Now is the time to get involved. If you have your ballot, vote it. Vote blue from top to bottom. That's voting pro-democracy. We need everybody. Every vote counts. Every person counts. You, I, and the Lincoln Project movement can do this together. Three weeks from now, we will help save American democracy. I cannot say thank you enough. We'll keep after the fight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Michael Cohen, former personal attorney of Donald Trump from 2006 to 2018. Before that, he was a vice president of the Trump Organization, co-president of Trump Entertainment, and deputy finance chairman of the Republican National Committee from 2017 to 2018. Now, Michael, if you didn't learn the sewer-like ways of Washington, D.C. before, you certainly did doing that. Which is amazing because I was never a Republican. I was the first Democrat to hold a vice chair position of the RNC Finance Committee. Go figure. Right, and that tells us everything we need to know about where we are right now. His latest book, Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics, is now available wherever fine books are sold. And as always, you can listen to his podcast, Mea Culpa, on your favorite podcast app. Today, he's coming to us from New York City. Michael, welcome back. Reed, good to see you, my friend. How are you? Well, I'm great, thanks. And like, I don't know, there's a lot to cover because you have such, I think, a unique perspective. But I want to get into January 6th and the committee and its decision to subpoena the former president. And I know you have very strong opinions on whether or not Trump will run again. I want to talk about that because folks have heard you and I talk about it on your podcast, but not here. But first, I want to talk about your book. So it's called Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice. So as I told you before we started, you are such a known quantity to any American who follows politics closely that I would venture to say that most people remember you from Stormy Daniels and Trump, right? And anybody else, maybe you've been on TV a lot. Maybe they listen to your podcast, which I recommend, or they know that you were, you know, you testified before Congress. But what I said about your book was, it really, to me, provided the third dimension of not only who you are as a person, as an individual, that you have a family, you have children, but also, you know, going to prison, even Camp Cupcake, as you call it, is not like an easy gig. You know, I had Mike Fanone from MPD on last week, and he was talking a lot about police reform and the things that he saw as a beat cop for 20 years. But you brought into, I think, pretty dark relief or deep relief what the American justice system looks like, specifically the federal justice system, which, as you know, having been subject to it, 
if they want you, they're going to find out a, a way to get you. Yes, as the old adage goes, you can indict a ham sandwich. What we've known and what Trump has always known is that there's always this belief that our justice system is corrupt, that there's issues that obviously desperately need to be corrected. Those issues and the corruption that exists within the DOJ, specifically the Southern District of New York, pales in comparison to when you have an autocrat, fascist, monarch, supreme leader, dictator, wannabe, sitting in the White House, who has a willing and complicit, bloviated shitbag for an attorney general, and I'm referring to Bill Barr. That's what happens when they want to get you. There is nothing that you can do. And what I try to do in revenge, which is really a dissection of the most corrupt investigation into a U.S. citizen in American history, they made me into the very first political prisoner held by my own country because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional rights. There's so much wrong with the system. And I don't want people to think that this is me bitching and moaning about my circumstances in life. I do that anyway. But in fact, what it really is, is it's judges like Judge Jed Rakoff, a very well-respected 30-year veteran on the bench of SDNY, that talks about the improper ways that the prosecutors go about when they want you. And I promise you, Reed, if you're high profile and they can get a benefit out of it, you're dead in the water, just as I was. I talk about the 48 hours that I was given to plead guilty to what they wanted me to plead guilty to, to read their allocution, or they were filing an 80-page indictment that was going to include my wife. And so for a guy who has never evaded taxes. I've never not filed taxes. You read about that in the book. Lanny Davis went wild when the charges first came out. He was like, how is this possible? He went on every television show with a PowerPoint presentation. There's not one single element of tax evasion that exists in my case, but it doesn't matter because when they have a gun to your spouse's head, to your loved one's head, there's nothing that you won't do in order to protect them. So you write in the book that you thought that the prosecutors believed you knew more, a lot more about Donald Trump and the things he was into than you did, even as long as you worked for him, that you said that there were some things in the Trump organization that he kept to himself that no one was really going to know about. But they thought that you were that window into him. So tell us a little bit about that experience, because you're like, look, I'll tell you what I know, but there's only so much I know. Correct. And the prosecutor I'm referring to, and I speak quite openly in the book, is uh, Thomas McKay. He's a young guy with a lot of aspiration, all right? There's also Nick Roos and then Andrea Griswold. They're all thinking about the public service, like maybe he thinks he's going to end up, you know, running the Southern District of New York down the road. The others all ended up going to major white shoe firms or Guggenheim partners for seven-figure salaries. Each one of them in their bios, first sentence, successfully prosecuted biggest 21st century case, United States versus Cohen. There was no prosecution. I pled guilty to a one-page information because on a Friday at 5.30 to a Monday at 9 a.m., who the fuck are you talking to? Who are you speaking to? Who's listening to you? The answer is no one. And there was not a chance in the world that I was going to let them go after my wife. My hope 
was that Judge William H. Pauley III, who's now deceased, that Judge Pauley would have seen exactly the corruption that was going on here. The fact that there was no tax evasion, there was no misrepresentation to a bank. Let me go to the easiest one to prove. And that was count number, I think it was seven, that I paid Karen McDougal, the Playboy Playmate, not to discuss her affair with Donald and that there was an NDA for that as well. Now, she was paid 150000 There was an NDA, but I had nothing to do with it. It was David Pecker, AMI, and the National Enquirer that paid her. Trump just wanted to make sure that he was protected in the documents. And if David Pecker would ultimately become the editor-in-chief of Time magazine, that we would be able to buy the life rights to keep it quiet. So, Michael, can I take a step back? Because I am a novice in all things legal. And thankfully, so far, to all things federal. Tell us a little bit about the Southern District in New York. I mean, you hear about them. You know, this is the place where... You know, it's Preet Bharara and other people have really made their names as prosecutors. Is that where the mob is typically prosecuted to? Yes. You know, that was under the Giuliani administration when he ran the criminal division for the Southern District of New York. They think that they are above the law. In fact, they act very much, if you ever saw the movie The Untouchables, they act in the exact same way. They will come, they will knock down your door. I don't mean that literally. And then they will destroy your entire life simply because they have the badge and they have prosecutorial immunity. So guys like Tom McKay, there was no speaking to him. He believed, gives a shit what this asshole believes. He believed that I knew more. Could you imagine? I gave over 400 hours of testimony to Congress. I gave 100 hours to the district attorney and the AG's office. Mueller report, 100 hours. I mean, you start adding it up. It's over 500 hours of time that I spent. I've given everything that I have. In fact, when they raided my home, the hotel that I was living in, not on the lamb, my home was under repair because my next door neighbor flooded us out. They raided my law office and my safety deposit box. Okay. They took like 10 million documents. That's what they took, 10 million documents. And so at the end of the day, what did they end up getting me on? They got me on Stormy Daniels, but that wouldn't have been enough for them because it would make them look like the assholes that they are. Now, I don't want to be indicting everyone that works at the Southern District of New York. There are good, decent prosecutors, judges, and so on. I just didn't have any of them. Each and every one of them that worked on my case is a scumbag that basically needed to use my case because of its high-profile nature in order to ensure themselves a benefit. I mean, could you imagine? One went to Lowenstein Sandler, two went to Davis Polk, one went to Guggenheim Partners, one went to McDermott, Will and Emery, you know, another went to Paul Weiss. You talk about the best criminal defense firms, at least here in New York City, and they all make seven figures. They all did it in their bios, using me as far as the prosecution. None of them wanted to hear anything. That's why they made the announcement on a Friday to my lawyer, not even to me, to my lawyer telling me if I don't come in on Monday and plead guilty, they're filing this indictment, they're gonna march me and my wife in handcuffs out of the building. I couldn't do that to her. Well, of course not, and they know that. It's what I've called before on the podcast, the Henry Hill moment, right? Exactly. They're sitting there and they're gonna get you too, Karen, right? You're not out of this. 
Um, and what are you going to do? Let me ask you a question, Michael. So I have observed a federal trial before. It was a federal corruption trial. And what I noticed was when it came to the judge, because the judge plays a role, a significant role in your trial here, is that whatever the prosecution wanted, the judge gave them. Whatever objection they put forth, he accepted, he upheld. When it came to the defense, and these were not public defenders, they were real defense attorneys, may we have an extra half a day? No. Objection. Overruled. Is that a normal thing? Because you think of the judiciary as part of, I guess, the judiciary, right? But it seems like that they, maybe it's because of their you know, lifetime appointees or whatever, but at least in my anecdotal case, and then here, it sure appears that the judge has an enormous amount of sway and seems likely to go with the prosecution just above everything else. Reed, they work in the same building. They're basically one to two floors apart from each other. They see each other on a regular basis for an extended period of time. They don't want the calendar getting... Could you imagine a fucking judge, Reed, a judge doesn't want his calendar to interfere with his vacation time or weekend time or his getting home to go play golf. And so to move the system quickly, they want plea deals. And God forbid, like in my case, where if you bring any information and try to provide it to them, whereby they are going to reduce a sentence, reduce a charge, get rid of a charge, what they do is they then say to you, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on now, Mr. Cohen. You're not taking responsibility. I love that shit, right? When they say, you know, we want you to accept responsibility. And then they hit you with the fucking sledgehammer with a 36-month sentence for what? For paying a porn star not to talk about Donald's mushroom pecker. That's really my charge. That's what I am guilty of. And also lying to Congress. I acknowledge that. Though, as I state in my book, what I lied to Congress about was the number of times. And I want you people to listen up because most people don't know this. The big lie on Michael Cohen was how many times I spoke to Donald about the failed real estate project in Moscow. I told Congress, which was at the direction again of Donald, his lawyers, Ivanka, Jared, a whole slew of people helped to mesh my statement together. I told that I spoke to him only three times about this failed project. The truth I spoke to him 10 times. That's the lie. Right. So before we move on to Otisville, in this part of the book, right, this is the closing line. The bottom line is I went to prison simply because I paid off Donald Trump's ex-lover. The irony here is I'm the only one who actually got screwed. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I sure did. You know, I go to bed every night, I wake up every night, and I exist every second of every minute of every hour of every day in pain, emotional pain. That's what I live with, the PTSD of the situation, the PTSD of Otisville, the fact that I never tax evaded, though I had to plead guilty, which is very hard for me. The fact that they made claims of a HELOC violation, misrepresentation to a bank, absolute lie, absolute lie. Then they made the claim that I had to plead guilty to Karen McDougal. I had nothing to do with it. And you can Google it. Look up David Pecker pays Karen McDougal. It's on the internet. But did anybody give a shit? The answer is no. Why? It goes right back to the very first thing you asked me, which is they all thought that I knew more about Donald Trump. They thought that Donald and the Trump organization was like Paul Castellano and Murder, Inc., right? It is not. 
All right. He's a scumbag. We don't need to have him kill someone on Fifth Avenue to lock his ass up. What we need is for Merrick Garland and Department of Justice to actually do what they're required to do. And not in the same manner that the Attorney General Bill Barr did, which is illegal, unethical, unconstitutional. But we need to move to hold these people accountable because I don't want anyone. I don't want you. And believe me, Donald doesn't like you or anybody there at Lincoln Project. Oh, believe me. We All right, know. So you're on his enemies list. I don't want any other American to go through what I went through and to suffer from the pain that I live with every second of every day. I don't want it. And I will fight, fight like fucking hell to make sure that this Justice Department is revamped. Fortunately, two days ago, you saw that Darren Williams, who is the head of the Southern District of New York right now, actually did something. It's the most aggressive thing that's come out of their office. They launched a new conviction integrity committee that is to help innocent people serving time for crimes that they did not commit. And I'm going to be honest, I'm in the process of writing a letter, a one-page, two-page letter to Darren to be considered, and I'm going to include my book because what my book does is it sets out a roadmap just like I did at the House Oversight Committee hearing, wishing people would listen. If people don't heed what's in this book, I promise you, Donald or Donald Trump 2.0 will end up in the White House and the democracy that we know will be gone. So this gives them a roadmap of what he tried to do, how he tried to do it, who he used, how he used it. I have statements in here from FBI agents, present and past, judges, attorneys, former SDNY prosecutors, journalists, you name it. It's all in there, starting with the fake Steele dossier all the way to the unconstitutional remand of a U.S. citizen back to prison because I wouldn't waive my First Amendment constitutional rights. So, Michael, let's talk about prison, Otisville. Now, there's a medium security prison there that has real dudes in it, right, who have committed real crimes, violent crimes. And then there's the satellite camp, Camp Cupcake, as you call it, I think, facetiously. But even though, you know, it was generally, you know, you guys could go play softball and you were working, but it wasn't 23 hours a day lockup, although until COVID hit, and we'll get to that. But the one thing I noted was that you said that when you go into the federal prison system, even at Camp Cupcake, this is about punishment. It's not about rehabilitation. The entire system is nothing more than human warehousing. You have all of these guys that were with me at this satellite camp. And I don't mean everybody. There were 120 guys that were there. Of the 120 guys, I would say 80 of them were professionals in some way, shape, or form. Now, we had some interesting guys when I was there. So don't get me wrong why I call it, you know, Camp Cupcake. Mike the Situation, Sorrentino from Jersey Shore was there with me. Senator Skelos, Dean Skelos, was there when, when I was there. You know, we also had Billy McFarland from Fire Festival was with me when I was there. There were four or five doctors that were there, including an orthopedist, maybe 10 accountants that were there. There were probably a dozen lawyers that were there. And then the rest, businessmen in some way, shape or form. Do you not think that if you really wanted to do something good for society, that the right thing to do is find them like they did to all of us? innocent or not, and then make you donate back to the communities that actually need your help. 
Maybe there are communities that are impoverished. They need businessmen to help them to start, organize a business, lawyers to help them to establish themselves and to get them themselves up and running. How about bankers? We had bankers there too. You know, accountants to help them to show what's the right way to do it so that you don't end up in trouble or anything like that. Instead, they shove you into this fucking butler building. And if anyone doesn't know what a butler building is, it's a metal framed building that is covered by aluminum siding with no insulation at all. It was freezing during the winter and stifling hot during the summer, but nothing compared to the room that I was in for my 51 days of solitary confinement. That was by far the worst. That was on the other side. And that was as a result of COVID? COVID and punishment. Okay. Yeah. And was the punishment arbitrary? Right now, I have four different FOIA requests out there to government. Some of it going back two and a half years. I haven't gotten a single page yet. Do I think that it's punishment? Absolutely. So I was told, like everybody at the camp when COVID first hit, that you're going home based upon your comorbidities. You're leaving. You're going to be on home confinement. And then when your home confinement is over, you go to supervised release. Okay, great. 14 days and then your family will come. They'll pick you up. We'll sign you out the whole bit. Well, while I'm in there on day 15, they tell me that the government wants to relook at all of my medicals. And this was signed off by the head of medicine there, a Dr. Lindley at Otisville, as well as this fantastic nurse that was there, Miss Stewart. Fabulous, two fabulous people. They both said to me, how could you not? The comorbidities that I have is in 2005, I blew a series of pulmonary embolists. So I have not full lung function, but if you get COVID, and especially at the beginning with the very first COVID-19, that was something that was happening. You were getting blood clots. Another blood clot to me is death. And so they got me out of there until the 15th day, one day more than I was supposed to be there. They tell me that my file was sent back to Washington for a secondary review, that you're not going home. So there, the choice was you could either sit in solitary or send you back to Camp Cupcake. But if you then are permitted to leave, you have to come back and do another 14 days. So I said, I'll go back to Camp Cupcake. And the administrator turned around and said, nah, you're just going to stay here. I mean, that's how the system works. You have no rights to anything. So this is why I talk about human warehousing. Prison is supposed to be for violent offenders, not for a guy who buys the car, for example, of a politician, and they decide that they're going to claim that it was bribery when he takes the title and he actually got a good deal on the car. All right. This sort of bullshit happens all the time. I mean, there are guys, they take everything. Makes no sense. Right. So you get out because of COVID, but then the attorney general at the time, Bill Barr says, uh-uh, you're going back. Correct. So tell us a little bit about that, because the judge even said he thought that this was just retaliation. Right. So now we're referring to the second judge, not Judge Pauly, who would care less if I rotted to death in prison. But what ends up happening is I'm supposed to now go to the Bronx to a company called Geo, which is a third party administrator of the ankle bracelets and have one installed. OK, no problem. Prior to that, I was on furlough. And I was actually the one that was pushing to get the ankle bracelet because I had a fear 
that they would try to figure out how to send me back somehow. Well, that's why when I went for dinner, I was 800 feet from my home. I was legally permitted to do that. I was on furlough. I could go anywhere in New York City that I wanted to, despite what the New York Post and Fox decided that they were going to say. So now I go ahead and I'm all set. I have a great guy named Mr. Gill who comes, visits me, all set. You're coming tomorrow or in two days to have the ankle bracelet put on up in the Bronx. I get a phone call from a guy named Adam Pakula, and I spell it out for everybody in the book just so that they could understand just how devious the administration, the Trump administration, and the DOJ was. So they turn around and they say, no, 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 Mr. Cohen, you're going to come to 500 Pearl Street, which is the criminal court. I said, why? So they're like, listen, it's not your right to question it. You're coming to 500 Pearl. There's nothing going on here. It's just that every now and then we pull a file out and yours happened to be that one. <laughs> okay, really? Michael, I'm pretty sure it just sat at the top and it just, every time it got covered over, somebody put it back at the top. Sure. And so I knew obviously that he's full of shit and, you know, that something was definitely amiss. So I call a friend of mine, Jeff Levine, who I've known since we were in junior high school. He's a lawyer here in the city. I said, Jeff, the weirdest thing just happened. Would you do me a favor? When I go down tomorrow, would you come with me? Meet me down over at 500 Pearl. So he goes, yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. I've never heard of anything like that. Okay. So we go down, we sit, they bring us in where I meet Adam Pakula and his supervisor, Enid Phoebus, who's now retired and moved down to Florida. Now what ends up happening is they give us a two-page document. If you've ever seen a federal document or any of your listeners have ever seen a federal document, they were basically written in like the 1960s and photocopied 80,000 times that you could barely read them. But one thing that they all have is they have a federal number on them. So, oh, yeah, you're going to fill out the F-45 form today. Oh, okay, yeah, great, the F-45 form. Great. Mine was a two-page document that was produced on Word that had no federal numbers onto it that looked like it just came out of the printer because it did. And now all of a sudden, we're reading it. The very first paragraph, very first out of nine paragraphs, prohibits me from publishing a book, doing a movie, a documentary, speaking to the press, my friends speaking to the press, my family speaking to the press. In essence, it's a complete gag order. Now, the problem is that my publisher had already had the manuscript for Disloyal and it was already in the process of being printed. So I said, if I sign this, I would automatically be in violation. So they said, well, let's go through two through eight or nine, whatever was on there. So we do, and we're fine with those. You know, they're not easy to comply with, but I could comply with them. It's the first one that I said, it's First Amendment violation. It is a complete gag order. So do me a big favor. Tell Bill Barr I say hi, because it's clear that he wrote this document. Or his people did. Like, no, 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 no. It's been used. It's used all the time. It's been used before. That's where I got it from. It's a lie. And even the judge called out that lie. Judge, and I'm talking about Alvin K. Hellerstein, fabulous human being who's one of the few judges that have actually done right, you know, by me since this ordeal. Ultimately, they ask us to wait in the waiting area. We do. We comply. And we're sitting there watching New York One, right, and talking to each other when three marshals show up with handcuffs and shackles, all right? And shackles, like I'm fucking Hannibal Lecter, all right? 
I'm Hannibal Lecter of paying 130 grand to a porn star. So how does something like this even happen? And again, what I talk about in revenge. Donald weaponized the Justice Department. He'd a willing and complicit attorney general. And if people don't think that this can happen again and happen to you, then you should put your head back in the sand like an ostrich and wait till the game is all over. Because it's not just Donald Trump. He's created Trumpism. Where we have a bigger problem, the Trump wannabes. Each one wants to be bigger, better, nastier, worse than Donald, because that's what seems to sell to their constituents. I want to take a pause here because I want I want our folks to understand this is that you were on home confinement. They bring you down. They bring you down for a specific reason, because they want you to shut up. They want you to sign a piece of paper you've never seen before. I assume that your friend, I don't know if he was acting as your counsel at that point, hadn't seen it before. And you said, yeah, I'm good with this other stuff because it whatever. But like, I'm not going to shut my mouth. I'm still an American citizen. And they say, OK, wait right here. Three dudes with guns and handcuffs show up, take you back to jail. Like that's authoritarianism right there. That's the definition of authoritarianism. That is absolutely correct. The only difference between them and Stalin is they don't kick the door down and bring you off to a gulag. Instead, they put me into a freezer downstairs. It was like 35, 40 degrees in there, left me there for a few hours until someone from uh, two um, very, very good COs, correctional officers at Otisville came and they drove me back to Otisville, you know, that night. This is the problem. This is the problem with the system. But isn't there normally a process, Michael? I mean, if you're on home confinement, doesn't there have to be a motion or something that says this person has violated the terms of their release and they're, therefore they're going back to their place of confinement? Well, they're supposed to notify you that there's a violation. And instead, I even said when they were standing there, okay, give it to me. I'll sign it. We could battle it out later, but I'll sign it. Nope, too late. A guy named Patrick McFarlane, who's a residential reentry manager, an RRM, over at MCC, Manhattan Correctional Center. Another low-level small guy, he's the one who signs the remand order. So I'm trying to find the chain of how this all happened, because McFarlane doesn't have the authority to do that. That came from higher up and higher up and higher up. I cannot get a single document from FOIA, from the government. And look who's asked for the documents so far. This is crazy. This is our fucking government, Reed. Who asked for it? First, it was Ted Lieu and Hakeem Jeffries. Sure. Members of Congress from California and New York, respectively. Exactly. Then Congressman Steve Cohen of Tennessee asked for them. Then Carolyn Maloney, also New York, who happens to be my rep, asked for it. And then on top of all of that, you saw that Senator Dick Durbin made a request to the IG for the Internal Revenue Service to open an investigation into how the IRS handled my tax evasion cases because there is no tax evasion. In fact, I've never received a letter from the IRS in my entire life. I've never been audited. I've never filed a late tax return. I've never not paid. I've never asked for an extension. I've never not paid taxes. And I put it in my book, Disloyal. While I didn't pay, and they are right, there is a tax omission that was the result of my shitty accountant who I sued and the judge let him off because the judge's response was, oh, well, you pled guilty to tax evasion. They had a fucking gun to my wife's head. It's like a hostage video. And this judge... And then we went on appeal 
and the appellate court agreed with the judge. This guy, every single dollar that I ever earned went into Capital One Bank, which was located at the base of the building I live in. And I gave him every single document, every bank statement in an organized three-ring notebook that even the agent from the Southern District of New York turned around and said, I've never seen anybody do their tax books like this. I'm OCD. And so I did. And I have the documents. I'm trying to get in touch with Dick Durbin so that I can show him the documents. This is the crazy part about FOIA. When we first filed the FOIA, they turned around and they said, there are no documents that are responsive. I have this all in the book. It is crazy. There are no documents that are responsive to your FOIA request. And so we pursued it. Litigation was started by a guy named Mark Zaid, who's a- Oh, sure, of course. We've had him on the podcast. Terrific guy. Very well. Terrific guy. And this is what he does. Oh, six weeks later or eight weeks later, they send a response to him. We made a mistake. There are actually documents. And we knew because I gave to Zaid four or five documents that I had had. There's 485,000 documents. So we went from zero to 485,000. I was supposed to receive the first 500 documents. It only take me 90 years to get them all. But I was supposed to get the first 500 August 22nd. You think I got a document? No. We got a document from them stating that methods and processes of other agencies are involved in these documents. And so after we finish reviewing it, we're going to send it to them. And only after that, when everybody redacts, you'll get the document, which means I'm going to get a bunch of black paper. This is not how government is supposed to operate. This is not how democracy is supposed to operate. And that's why I warn everybody and I, and I say, Revenge is possibly the single most important book that people need to read. Not about Trump being a fucking racist. We all know that. Another book about him being a con man and a scumbag or, you know, fucking somebody over. We already know that. I've already given more than enough testimony on that. This is your freedom, your democracy that's in peril. And this is the playbook on how Trump tried to do it and how the next Trump 2.0 will try to do it but improving in order to be successful next time. Let me ask you this, because I want to start moving to the now and the future. So Bill Barr, you know, held himself up as, you know, he was AG under George H.W. Bush 30 years ago. Then he decided he wanted, you know, somebody said they'll ask you to be AG. He comes in, decides to basically be the president's defense attorney or hitman, hatchet man, whatever it is. And now he's out there, Michael, trying to sort of rehabilitate himself. He finally stood up to Trump, you know, post-election 2020, when he realized, like, if I get any deeper in this, it's my rear end in the, in the sling. Is he just rewriting history now? Because this does not seem like a guy who was a paragon of jurisprudence when he was the AG. In fact, in the infamous photo of Trump crossing Pennsylvania Avenue to go to Lafayette Square, he's got a real sort of minister of internal security look about him. Yeah. First of all, he's not looking to rehabilitate his now disgraced reputation because he gives a shit about you, certainly about me. If he really wants to do something, why doesn't he come clean and tell the truth about what Donald told him to do in regard to me? He won't do that. What he wants is 
to be able to sit there with that fat fucking belly of his, you know, in a slumped ass position, like the lard ass that he is. And he wants to sit there and say, oh, I told Donald that you lost the election, Donald. All right. You know, you lost it fair and square. There's no satellites. <laughs> Bullshit. What he wants is he wants us all to think that, you know, he's not the scumbag dirtbag that he is and that he should be invited and welcomed back into polite society. That's what he's really looking for. Because, you know, look, I go out to restaurants here in the city, and I have people come over to me all the time. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for speaking the truth. I wish they would know how much further than just speaking truth that I actually went through, right, including copping to charges that I was not guilty of. I accept it. We take some Instagram, some Snapchat photos, some pictures, whatever. And then I go back to dinner. When he goes out for dinner, I'm sure he's thinking, I wonder if the chef took a shit in my food, <laughs> right? Like that South Park one. Someone pissed on your potatoes, shit on your tomatoes. It's called the Yelper Special. I certainly recommend that you watch it because it is great. But that's what I'm sure he's concerned about because he should be concerned. This is a guy that tried to destroy democracy. He took a shit on our Constitution. That's what he did. And only 17 days before the end of his term, he decides to come out and say, oh, I told Donald, you know, bullshit. Come clean. Tell us what you know and tell us the truth. And I guarantee, like me, he probably has documents someplace. Now, the difference for me is I gave all my documents. Every single one. And the ones that they had taken, even ones that they didn't take. If I found them, I turned them over to the DA, the AG, to the Mueller team, to everyone. And here's something interesting. The only one that didn't believe me is the Southern District of New York. Only the Southern District of New York believed that I had more information. I knew more. All right. I answered every single question. Every single question asked of me that I knew the answer to. I wasn't going to make stuff up, but anything that they asked me that I knew of, not only did I provide them the answer, I provided them with either documentary evidence that I had or information on where they can get the documentary evidence. But only Tom McKay and Nick Roos and the Southern District of New York, Kazami and Berman, look at Berman. Guy puts out a book. Could you imagine what he did, as far as I'm concerned, is not just unethical, it's illegal. He's being pressured by Bill Barr to whitewash all the charges that had anything to do with Trump, in my case, and throw the book at me on other things so that Donald could be exonerated. And then he puts a book about it. It's disgraceful. So let's switch gears a little bit and bring it up close to the present. So you mentioned documentary evidence. Starting back, I guess it was technically the summer of 21, but really this past summer, the January 6th committee really got to work. And there were a lot of people who complied with subpoenas. If they didn't speak in person, they spoke, you know, on video before investigators. Do you believe that that committee has made its documentary case against Trump, one? And two, do you believe the Biden administration's Justice Department will pursue Trump with federal charges? So what I can say about the January 6th panel is good for all of them. They are exactly what we should be electing to public office, not the Josh Hawley's, the Jim Jordan's, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, right? Those are the wrong people. These are the right people. These are people that care about democracy. Do I think that their committee did 
not just a good investigation, but a fantastic investigation? The answer is yes. I think they absolutely did. I think that they laid it out in an absolutely dramatic way. It is imperative for America to have a full accounting of what happened, very much like the Mueller report. It's a historical book. Now we get to the second part of your question. Do I think that they have enough evidence there to indict Donald and others, many others? And I'm not talking about these low-level oath keepers or any of these other insurrection groups. Do they have enough evidence to indict people like Mark Meadows? Yeah, I think so. Do I think that Merrick Garland will do it? No, I just don't. Why is that? Sadly, because I think his position is, yeah, we could indict him, very much like Donald was indicted, right, impeached twice, but you were never going to get the Senate to convict him. I believe that Merrick Garland knows that we can bring a case and we would be justified to do so, but I'm not sure that we can get a conviction. That's what I think Merrick Garland is vociferating about right now. And somewhere along the line, I want to put a fucking billboard up in his office, literally across from his desk, saying, your job is not to convict. It's to prosecute. Let the jury make its own decision. Don't you presuppose that you know what the jury is going to do. And chances are he may be right that there's going to be one holdover that's going to say, fuck it, I'm the Trump supporter. There's not a chance in the world I'm going to convict this guy of anything. Even if he killed someone on Fifth Avenue, I'm not convicting him. He's Donald Trump. It's possible. It's not Merrick Garland's job to think like that. They're thinking about their own careers instead of democracy and instead of justice. Well, the FBI's got some, I think everybody can agree the FBI's got plenty of work to do. The Justice Department, I think, pre-Bill Barr, you know, pre-Jeff Sessions, post-Bill Barr, I think thought, okay, it doesn't want to be a politicized institution. There's really no such thing, but okay, that's the standard they want to hold themselves up to. And prosecuting Trump would cause a lot of tumult in the country, and it would inherently politicize the department. Okay. But I think my issue with that line of thinking, Michael, much like yours, is but if you don't attempt to prosecute him for the crimes that we all believe he's committed to serve justice to the American people, then you are saying implicitly, and Donald Trump will say it explicitly, I didn't do anything wrong. And he'll also say, Reed, I am above the law. And that's a problem. Right. It was all a hoax. Russia was a hoax. Comey was a hoax. Mueller was a hoax. All of it was a hoax. And he'll say, you tell me, what would he say to his guys? What would he say to the people around him? Those P words, they didn't have the guts to do it. I told you from the very beginning, they were just out to get me. It's all a hoax. There's no Russia, Russia, Russia. There was no insurrection. It was peaceful. It was like any other day with any other visit and all of the other bullshit, you know, like his Mar-a-Lago stolen documents, you know, that I know it in my gut. You know, August 31st, I put out a tweet that said, I believe that there are more documents that he hid, whether it's at Trump Tower in his apartment, whether it's at Jared's and Ivanka's or Don Jr.'s or Eric's house, whether it's at the Trump National Golf Club in D.C. or any place else that he went. I assure you, I know from inside sources that there are documents, top secret documents that are missing. And that needs to worry 
all of us, every single one of us, Republican, Democrat, independent, because we don't exactly know what those documents are. All I know is that our national security is being jeopardized. This man is compromising national security. He is the greatest danger to this country's national security ever. Michael, let me ask a question, and present company excluded, of course, here. Why does Trump attract so many weirdos? Because the people around him are really strange. Yeah. Each one of them, and myself included, I can't be excluded from this because I worked for the man for over a decade. What he is incredibly successful at doing, like a cult leader, is he figures out your, I don't want to call it your weakness, but what's important to you. And he bombards it with whatever it is that is your inherent weakness. So if you are a latent racist and he turns around and he makes like what he's doing, these anti-Semitic, anti-black, anti-brown, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, you know, statements, all of a sudden you're like, all right, this guy thinks like me. And He's telling us, I'll see you at the Capitol. He wants us to go there. So he, like I always said, like a mob boss, he speaks in code. And how you decipher that code is, of course, based upon yourself. So when you have somebody like a Steve Bannon, who is hungry as hell for power, Steve Bannon wants to be a power player more than you could possibly imagine. Steve Miller, he's just a fucking freak. He's a weirdo. His own family, you know, he grew up in the same area that I did in Long Island. They don't speak to him. He's a disgrace to the family. Then on top of that, you have others like Dan Scavino. Dan Scavino, people have to understand, was Donald's caddy, who ultimately, I, I'm not bullshitting you, look this up. I know Dan. Dan was a caddy, who then became the general manager to Trump National Briarcliff Manor. He wasn't doing a good job at least Alan Weisselberg said so, and they fired him. So he ended up years later coming to me and saying, I want to run Donald's social media platform during the campaign and I'll do it for free. I just want to make amends with him because once Donald fires you, you never come back. It's very, very rare. Dan happens to be one of them. And so his loyalty, because it's both money and access to power and relevance, is the reason why he refused to go and to testify before the January 6th committee, violated a subpoena. Each and every one, Rudy Colludi, Giuliani, money, money and power. That's all that it was. For me, it was the excitement of the deal and the celebrity stardom that really pulled me in. I didn't need the money. I talk about that in Disloyal. I retired when I was 39. I got very lucky. I'm not the rags to riches story the media wants to portray me as. In fact, it's the other way around. I lost it all. So you and I have talked about this a couple of times. You don't think he's going to run for president again? No, because, well, I'll let you ask me why. <laughs> why, Michael? Why won't he run for president again? Excellent question, Reed. <laughs> and the answer is because the great grift would be over. Right now, he's pulling down numbers that he's never seen, even at the height of The Apprentice. He's pulling down 150, 200 million for his super PAC, which if you read the fine print, he's permitted to use 90 cents of every dollar, 90% of all the funds at his sole discretion. 
He can go out tomorrow buy himself a new airplane. He can go buy himself a house. He could do whatever he wants with that money. And it's not violative of the super PAC. So for every dollar you give, only 10 cents of every dollar goes to politics. That all comes to an end if he makes a formal announcement. On top of that, and more importantly, or of equal import, is the fact that statistically, he knows he can't win. While he has a significant base, and that base is waning every single day, let's say he has 22% now of the Republican Party. Republican Party only constitutes 40% of the country, of 40% of the voters. So he only has, of the 40%, he's 20% of that. So put it all into perspective. And Donald's biggest fear is being a two-time loser. You ever want to upset Donald? Call him a loser. It's a word he can't stomach. He hates it. And so knowing that he would lose and be a two-time loser, and at the same time, lose the great grift and being a power player where people have to come to kiss his ring at Mar-a-Lardo or wherever else that fucking asshole is at, stuffing his face with burgers and ice cream. That's what he wants. Now, he would prefer to be president, but only if he would be given the presidency. He doesn't want to have to run for it again. Right. But let me ask you this. Let's go along with the supposition that he doesn't run again. What is he looking for in an heir apparent because these kinds of guys michael it's not often their family we certainly know that he doesn't really except for ivanka he didn't really like his kids what would he be looking for i mean it's hard to imagine any of these people debasing themselves further than they have i'm sure they can but what would he be looking for to get that support which would probably not get that person every vote but we probably get him enough votes to win the primary loyalty undivided loyalty that's what he wants. He wants that person to immediately put an end to the January 6th hearings, any potential indictments or any potential further investigations. He wants them to use the power of the attorney general, whoever that person may end up being, and to shut down all of this. He wants the guy, the next president, assuming it's his guy, to give him and anybody that he asks immediate blanket pardons, so that all of this stuff goes away. That's what he wants from them. Now, to me, I'll tell you what that's very reminiscent of. When Vladimir Putin's two-term ended years ago, and he didn't want to give up the power, so he decided to support Medvedev. And when Medvedev won, he made himself into the prime minister, which actually is a higher position than the president. Of course, it never existed before, but everything goes through the prime minister that the president legitimately has limited authority without sign-offs. And after the four years, what do we know? Putin runs again, and then he changes the constitution. That's exactly what Trump is looking for. He so desperately wants to be Putin, and the people who really better fear this guy, and I mean Donald, and fear him, fear him well. People like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, all of these mega billionaires. Because Donald will come and take your money. And there's not a fucking thing you can do about it. Because as powerful and as rich and as strong as you think you might be, you are a weakling compared to the process, to the government. They can change the rules on you anytime they want, especially if you have an attorney general like Bill Barr.
They will prosecute you. They will take your money. They will freeze it. They will do to them what Mohammed bin Salman did to his right. royal relatives. No, and, you know, it's interesting. In the spring of 21, Michael, Delta and Coca-Cola came out against the voting laws that had just been passed in Georgia in the wake of January 6th. And Ted Cruz wrote an article for The Wall Street Journal that basically said, and hey, Coca-Cola, don't forget, you owe us a billion dollars in taxes. And Michael, what I said is, now fast forward to that. It could be in his office. It could be in the boardroom. Suddenly, a bunch of IRS and FBI agents show up and say, you're coming with us. And the guy says, what did I do? And they said, you didn't pay your taxes. You say, well, I paid my taxes. And they said, but Coca-Cola didn't. And you're coming with us. And the next thing you know, he's sitting in the federal detention center in Atlanta going, what the heck happened to me? And Michael, when I say this, it's like a second head has grown out of my shoulders. People just don't believe it. Reed, look at what happened to Carlos Ghosn, where there was the big fight between Renault and Nissan. Same exact thing will happen here. The guy was innocent. He did, what did he do? He did nothing. It was a power play between governments. He needed to be taken care of. And so the Japanese government decided to do so. You think that we're any different? You know, people forget that democracy is not a constitutional right. First of all, it's a privilege. But more importantly, we are an experiment. And if we don't protect democracy every single day, someone like Donald Trump, Bill Barr, you know, a Mark Meadows, a Jim Jordan, all of them will figure out how to strip us every single day of constitutional rights, very much like the way that the Supreme Court just pulled away Roe. Same exact thing. And there's nothing that any of these very wealthy individuals can do to stop it. And they better wake the fuck up real fast. And so need all the listeners you know, yours, mine, the ones that I talk in front of on television or in the press, because we are so close to losing democracy that this November election means more than what people can imagine. And I don't want to have to be the guy before they execute me, of course, turn around saying, I told you so. This democracy, I pray that I can leave to my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and generations thereafter, but not the way we're going. Well, amen to that. And, and Michael, I don't know if I told you this, but Mark Meadows, who you mentioned previously, sent an opposition research document about the Lincoln Project with my name, Rick Wilson's name, Stuart Stevens' names at the top of it, to Bill Barr, then Attorney General on November 11th, 2020, and said, here's the document we discussed. Our FOIA requests at, at this point have been, we've gotten things like you, but they've been largely fruitless. But, you know, it's one of those things, you know, Michael, where you're like, holy shit, <laughs> like, that's a real thing. Now take it a little bit further, Reed. You were targeted like I was targeted. But they didn't maybe think that for the moment that you were a big enough problem to them. And so that's why you were never hauled off and, you know, had the FBI show up at your home. If, in fact, that they thought differently, you would have been... Rick and Stuart, all of you, would have been raided by the FBI for something, and they would do the same exact thing to you that they did to me. They would give you an option that you can't refuse, like the mob. Yeah, the godfather. Either your brains or your signature are going to be on this contract. Yeah. Well, Michael, this has been, as always, an incredible conversation. Gang, out there, Michael Cohen, Revenge, How Donald Trump Weaponized the U.S. Department of Justice Against His Critics. Find it wherever your fine books are sold. Michael, before we let you go, where can folks find you online and where can they find Mea Culpa? 
wherever you get your podcast. I'm on everything. We're a top 50 news podcast on Apple. We're doing very, very, we just turned over 55 million downloads since we started. So the movement is growing. I'm on TikTok. I'm on Instagram, Twitter. But where I'm telling you where I'm going to be on November 1st, I'm going to be in Los Angeles at the El Rey Theater doing a Mea Culpa live event. First time it'll be live stream, but you can buy tickets at elraytheater.com, I think is where you get it at. I have a couple of special guests coming to join me on stage, and there'll be a Q&A with the audience as well. Kathy Griffin. Oh, great. Harry Littman and Jason Van Tattenhove. To those of you who don't recognize that name, Jason is the former Oath Keeper spokesperson. Oh, sure, of course. That's yes, November yes, yes. 1st in Los Angeles. So if you're going to be there, if you're an L.A. resident, you want to come see it, El Rey Theater, November 1. Well, get out and see Michael and co. As always, gang, you can find me online, Twitter, at Reed Galen, Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. And I, this week, Michael, have joined TikTok, at Reed Galen. I'm not sure what I'm doing there, but I post videos. And if you're there, follow me. Michael, I can only say thank you. I hope you'll come back. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.